The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 8, 6 through chapter 9. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had become bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. If you were with us last fall, we we took a few weeks and we studied um, the Lord's Prayer in this sermon series called Pray Like Jesus. We went line by line um, through the Lord's Prayer. And what we noticed was that when that prayer is memorized, uh, oftentimes it's easy to let it just sort of roll off the tip of our tongues, sort of be desensitized uh, and unmoved by the, the big things that we're asking from God or, or asking God to do in us. Um, and that was a series to sort of slow us down, to sort of shape our minds uh, around this prayer. Because when Jesus gave us this prayer, it, he, he intended it for it to do two primary things every time we pray. First of all, he gave it to us, or prayer in general, uh, to remind us that where our strength fails is where God's power begins, so in the sense that, that as creatures, we realize that there's limitations on us, that, that we're created beings, that we can't do everything. And so we come to God in prayer asking for his help. And while we are limited, God is not. Now the second thing that big picture-wise the Lord's Prayer is meant to do is to, to function as a, a meaningful cadence that snaps us back to the comforts that we find in the true, rea true reality in Christ. It, it, it's telling us that, it, it's speaking to the deep anxieties and fears in our lives. It, it's shaping our actions and our thoughts and our desires. And, and as we've been going through the book of Revelation, I've been struck by how much of an overlap there is between the Lord's Prayer and the book of Revelation. I've never thought of it that way. And when you really step back and work your way through it, Revelation, in some pretty tremendous ways, echoes the Lord's Prayer. 
We see this from the beginnings of chapter one and chapter two where we're in the throne room at the center of the universe and we're seeing God, the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, the victorious lamb who was slain and angels and saints are there proclaiming his holiness, his glory, his power, his might. Last week in chapter seven, God gives us the promise to his people that we'll never be hungry or thirsty again. And that just in itself points us to the the petition that we make for our daily bread. We come to the blood of the lamb that cleanses us from all of our sins. The sins of commission, sins that we actively take part in and the sins that we omits, that things that we are supposed to do that we don't do, things, sins that are, are flat-out rebellion against God, and sins that are, are more like attempts at self-sufficiency. And all of that is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. In the Lord's Prayer, we are told, or, or we pray, Forgive us as we forgive others. And here we see in Revelation that Christians uh, experience unjust persecution, unjust suffering. In this hostile world, we have the opportunity now to practice this sort of forgiveness. And then chapters two and three, which were the letters to the seven churches, basically are contextualized directives on how to resist temptation and how to remain faithful. And you see these similarities between Revelation and the Lord's Prayer. And this reason for this is because Revelation ends with the actualized realization of everything that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Everything that we're asking for in the Lord's Prayer comes true in Revelation 21 where God's kingdom comes down to this earth where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven where the new heavens and the new earth are met together as one. Now this is the glorious day when we are face to face with Jesus where there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, no more guilt or fear or injustice. But before arriving to the glory of chapter 21, God is essentially showing us in John's revelation, in in Revelations chapter six through 20, how he will accomplish that. And that comes in the petition, deliver us from evil that we find in the Lord's prayer. And we say, deliver us from me. We're asking God, as his people, Lord, save us from the evil that surrounds us. Now, in order to do this, in order to deliver on the new heavens, new earth, God is going to execute justice and destroy every single molecule of evil. Everything that is not perfect, everything that is not holy, or just will face face a thorough punishment of God's wrath. Now, knowing this should be a little bit concerning if you have any sort of self-awareness. Because as humans, as flawed and sinful humans, we are incapable of living a perfectly holy life. The apostle 
Paul doesn't mince words in Romans chapter three. He comes out and says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. And every Sunday, we come together as God's people and we confess our sins together as a church. We're not protesting that. We're we're embracing that. And this confession that we do together is sanctifyingly, self-deprecatingly honest. That there's something about this, even as we confess our sin and our faults, that is good for us. Because here as God's people, we're refusing to posture ourselves. We're refusing to pretend like we're better than we are. We're fighting the religious urge that we have to appear holier than thou. It's this confession of sin that puts every person on the same playing field, whether you've been walking with the Lord for several decades or, or if you're somebody who stumbles in off the street just scratching rock bottom. Everybody is on the same playing field. As we confess our sin, this is an admission. We're admitting that apart from Jesus, apart from his finished work, we are utterly and completely hopeless. That we have a snowball's chance in hell There's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of the pit that we have dug by our sin. Now, confessing our sin is the courtroom equivalent of pleading guilty to cosmic crimes against God. And this is damning because the punishment, the sentence that we receive for these crimes isn't a little probation time. It's not a little time spent in jail. This is for us to be eternally under God's wrath. And last week in chapter six, the question was asked, who can stand? Who can stand under God's wrath? Who can survive that? And the answer is no one. There's there's no one who can stand on their own, which when we look at it this way, when we make it this stark, it seems pretty depressing, fatalistic even. It makes most of us uncomfortable and we squirm in our seats. Now the church has been battling with this for a long time. It feels the pushback and in recent decades as the church talks about these hard topics, there's this desire to side skirt these discussions about sin and wrath and judgment. Try to soften it up in a way that makes things a little bit more palatable for the modern person. But to do this is an injustice, it's a, it's a detriment, it's unhelpful. Because only when we understand the reality of the bad news, when, only when we understand how hopeless we are, are we able to respond appropriately to the good news that we find in Christ. 
See, knowing that we're unable to stand under God's judgment on our own causes us to rejoice in the gospel when we find out that because we have been sealed by Christ, because he has lived and died for us, he's lived the perfect life on our account, he died the death that we deserve, that we rejoice. And that the only way to withstand such brutal judgment is to be covered by the blood of the lamb. So now, as we are covered by Christ, instead of hopelessness, because of Jesus and what he has done, we now have an incredibly bright future. He lifts us out of that heaviness and gives us a song, a new song to sing in our heart. Now, when we're coming back to the Lord's Prayer, when we're praying, deliver us from evil, we're typically thinking about this transaction of being delivered from evil as sort of a personal or corporate salvation, right? That, that God is freeing us from the penalty and the punishment of sin. But there's an even broader application to this prayer that as we pray, deliver us from evil, the world itself will be delivered. It'll be purged from all evil. Every single evil intruder that we are familiar with in this life, injustice, famine, natural disasters, genocide, wars, racism, all of those things will get evicted from this earth to the point that one day when Christ comes back with the new heavens and the new earth, the two will become indistinguishable from each other. We will finally be able to say, it is on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we look at Revelations, Revelation chapter eight and nine from this perspective, it helps us frame up what's going on here. God is fulfilling the supplication that his people have been making for the last 2,000 years. That God is delivering us, his people, this world from evil. Now, I admit that this, this passage that we come to today is not a, a top 10 favorite of anybody. Right, you're not gonna see this on coffee mugs. Nobody's gonna have this on, on a t-shirt. You're leading your friend to Christ. This is not gonna be one of the first passages that you take them to in trying to win them over to Christ. Parents aren't gonna use this for, for a life verse for parent-child dedications or baptisms. Because this, quite frankly, this is a passage that is strange and frightening and very sobering, and we need it. So let me assure you, you're not alone this morning. If you come to it and you, you get a little queasy, in fact, I, I come up here this morning and I'm feeling a little bit queasy with it because I've been sitting in this text for the last week. But if we frame this up as God delivering the promises of the Lord's Prayer, this makes sense. See, this isn't God off his meds. God isn't flipping out on creation for no reason. Everything that he does in chapters eight and nine, in fact, the rest of Revelation, 
is measured and calculated and appropriate. Remember that. This is helpful to keep in mind as we watch this created order sort of unravel in this process of judgment, which is the equivalent of decreation. Now, if, you're here, if you were here last week, you're probably wondering, because this seems to be a little bit repetitive here. We saw some of this decreation start happening last week with the four horsemen, and the foundations of the earth started to crumble. The sky was wiped out. And so you're probably wondering, this, this is happening again? I, I thought this unraveling happened last week with the seals. And so it's fair to ask, what's left to be destroyed? I thought Jesus pretty much executed everything. But what John is doing here in the book of Revelation, he's, he's making note of the thoroughness of God's judgment. And in order to do that, he provides three sets of judgments. We saw the, last one, the first one last week, right, with the seven seals as they were open. This week we see six of the seven trumpet blasts. And then later on, we're going to see a set of seven bowls of wrath being poured out. Now, given the way that we read linear, linearly, right? We, we read from left to right, down the page. It gives us the impression that, that these sets of three uh, acts of judgment are happening one after the other. That it's some sort of sequential, chronological unfolding of, of God's revelation, of God's judgment, excuse me. But most likely, what scholars say is that these three sets of judgments are, are not three different sets of judgment. In fact, it's, it's just, it's one set of events approached from three different angles. They call this, and this is a $5 phrase, they call it progressive recapitulation. Okay, so, so what's happening here is that, that John is telling the story of God's judgment, but he's doing it in a way that each time he tells it, he adds a layer. It's kind of like a movie that came out uh, a few years ago called Vantage Point. It's, it's basically a, a story about, uh, I don't even remember what it's about, honestly, but, but the way the film is set up is kind of unique in, in that one event happens, and throughout the movie, that one event is told from several different angles, different eyewitness accounts. And so that is kind of what's happening here in the book of Revelation. John is describing God's judgment from different standpoints, different vantage points. Last week, the seals were, you could say, from, from the, the vantage point of a believer, Right, he talked about the seal of the scroll being opened. But in the midst of opening the seals, God's people were sealed in. They were marked and secured and protected. But chapter 8 and 9 comes at it from the perspective of an unbeliever, someone who's been unrepentant and does not relent to God's call, which explains the bleakness which we experience and feel. See, as John is telling us about these trumpet blasts, these, these blasts are, are ear-splitting. 
And John writes in a way as if they're coming fast and hard. Within six verses, from, from verse 6 of chapter 8 to verse 12, we see a third of the entirety of the earth, the sky and the seas, taking major blows. We see hail and fire mixed with blood being poured out all over the earth. Grass is destroyed. A flaming mountain is tossed into the sea, killing a third of the sea creatures and the ships that find their home in that. Drinking water is poisoned, causing people to die. A third of the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened. This is pretty disturbing. And then verse 13, an eagle flies overhead and cries out with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Now, there are a few things that are going on here that are, are noteworthy, that we need to kind of grab onto if we're gonna understand what's happening. Throughout the book of Revelation, John uses a moniker um, he, he uses earth dwellers as a moniker for people who have rejected God, people who are unrepentant of their sin, who refuse to trust in Jesus as their savior. Following in the footsteps of Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. Christians have been notorious for claiming that this world is not our home. We, we say that we are resident aliens. We are spiritual exiles. We're here in a place temporarily that isn't necessarily our final resting place, but for people who are unbelievers, this is all that they have. They belong to the earth. They are earth dwellers. They, they belong to the kingdoms that currently exist that one day Jesus will overthrow. And so when this eagle cries out, woe, he's signifying a great distress. Now you, you look back, there's already a lot of distress. A third of the earth is in distress. But here this eagle cries out, woe, that things are about to escalate to an even further degree in these next three trumpet blasts. Things are gonna get weirder. Things are gonna get more unbearable for those who are earth dwellers. When the fifth trumpet blows, in chapter nine, and I wish I had time to go through all of these and pull it apart. There, there's a lot of imagery here that, again, takes us back to the Old Testament. But I'm just sort of flying through this here. In the fifth trumpet below, beginning of, of chapter nine, the first 12 verses, John intentionally paints a picture that all hell is breaking loose. And I mean that in like the most literal way. He's this, this angel that gets kicked out, the star that falls, is Satan being kicked out of heaven. And, and Satan falls to the earth and he has a key to a bottomless pit. 
that for whatever time has been containing and suppressing some demonic creatures. And from this bottomless pit, as it's open, there's a thick cloud of smoke that pours out. It's so thick that, it, that I, whatever, so just imagine this. Already a third of the light that we experience is darkened. And now this thick cloud of smoke comes into this darkened earth and makes things even darker. And if the darkness wasn't enough, from the pit comes locust-like creatures. And, and honestly, John's description is absolutely terrifying. It, it sounds, like, sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. Look, look at verse seven of chapter nine. He says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Okay, horses, all right. On their heads were that which looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, the, the star that fell from heaven. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is Apollyon. Now th those words mean destruction and destroyer, which Satan is framed up as the great destroyer. These, these creatures are terrifying. And unlike common locusts that are physically harmless, right? Locusts don't sting people. Um, most of their terrible impact is on plants and trees and crops. These demonic creatures do the inverse. They, they come and they don't harm the plants but they bring a world of hurt to the people. With their, their scorpion-like tails deliver constant, non-fatal stings. And they have a very specific target. It's, it's the earth dwellers, the people. Look at verse four and five. See, they were... These locusts were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. He's talking about the earth dwellers. These locusts were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever been, a couple years ago, my family and I, we went camping, um, and it was just a terrible experience. We were, we were along this little stream. Um, mosquitoes were miserable. Like, we went for a walk, thinking, this'll be nice, relaxing along a nice little, little uh, canal, and we'll enjoy it, and 
It did not take long for us to realize how miserable this experience was. Mosquitoes bombarded us, like like unbearable. Our our oldest was about two years old at the time. He came home from this camping trip with 15 mosquito bites across the forehead and the back of his neck alone. Just absolutely drilling us. And, And on this walk, we got to the point where the mosquitoes were so overwhelming, the only thing we could do was just like hightail it out of there. By the end of the walk, we were jogging out of there trying to get away from mosquitoes. Now, maybe you've experienced that on a camping trip, how bad and, and pestering and just how tormenting little bugs can be. Multiply that times infinity, okay? That is, that is the torment in which people experience here. They're absolutely miserable, and there's no escape. There's no alternative but to experience and forbear this misery. In fact, in verse six, look at this. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then the sixth trumpet blasts. And these four angels who had been bound up, who had, God had restrained, are released to wreak havoc. And they go out with this terrifying army. You see this in verse 13. And it says that their their horses looked like lions and smoke and sulfur poured forth from their, their mouths. And there's something toxic about this smoke that it would kill people. And if people weren't killed by the smoke from their mouths, they would be afflicted by their tails, which their tails were like serpents. And these demonic riders are sent out to kill a third of mankind. Listen, this is absolute pandemonium. This is the stuff that nightmares are made of. And the way that John talks about this he, he makes it really clear that human language is failing at describing the terror of these things. He, he's using the odds and ends of, of human language. You see this in the way that he uses the word like. The locusts were like horses. They looked like human faces, like women's hair, like lion's teeth. Eight times is the word like used in three verses. He's finding the difficulty of using human language that is rooted in a physical world to describe the hauntings of the spiritual reality. And for decades, people have been looking specifically at these two chapters and and theorizing about what it is that John saw. 
Some theories say, oh, those are Apache helicopters, the locusts, they're, they're Apache helicopters coming or some sort of modern war machine that's gonna come and destroy. Now, I don't know about all that, but, but what I do think is that it's safe to conclude that the imagery, the descriptions that John is attempting to make are a metaphor. It's a metaphor for something much worse. He, he doesn't know how to explain it. He's trying his best to, to communicate it, but words are failing. Now, there, there's a terror to what we see here in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. But John leaves breadcrumbs for us to make sense of this, right? Taking us back to the Old Testament. He's, he's giving us clues on how we can biblically make sense of what's going on here because it sounds absolutely miserable. And the breadcrumbs that he leaves leads us back to Exodus, where God's people have been trapped in Egyptian slavery for 400 some years. They've been oppressed and beaten. They've been subjective, subjected to hard slave labor under the cruel hand of Pharaoh. And here God sends Moses to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. He, each time, he goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. But over and over and over, Pharaoh says no, and he hardens his heart toward God. God sent plagues each time Pharaoh told him no, and each one of those plagues was a direct attack on one of their false gods that the Egyptian people would worship. Now, in these plagues, what God is doing here is showing his power in judgment. Each time Pharaoh had a run-in with God, his heart got harder and harder and harder. Each plague got more severe until it was finally the Egyptian people were crushed at the death of their firstborn sons. Now, you would think that in the process of unleashing these plagues on the Egyptian people, there would be some relenting, right? At some point, the, the Egyptian people would realize, I think we're outmatched here. We might as well subject ourselves to this living and true God. But that's not what happened with the majority of Egyptians and definitely not with Pharaoh, Although there were a minority of Egyptians who had a different response. They, they became aware of the severity of God's judgment. They became aware of God's power and they had a change of heart and they turned and they worshiped the living God of Israel. And we see this in Exodus chapter 12 where we're told a mixed multitude leaves Egypt to escape Pharaoh and to worship the real God. Now, in Revelation 8 and 9, John is invoking much of the same feeling here. 
But what he's telling us is what's happening here is the great and the truer exodus where God is taking his people and he's moving us out of the brokenness of the world and and he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. He's delivering us to a a new promised land. And ultimately, that's what's gonna happen when the seventh trumpet is, is blown in chapter 11. Final judgment happens. All evil is judged. All evil is done away with. The kingdom of earth is now the kingdom of Christ. But to get there, God is dealing with all of the evil in the world in the way that he dealt with Pharaoh and the Egyptians through these plagues of judgment. Now, you can see the similarities here because as the trumpet blasts are being described, they're actually being called plagues, right? So, so that word itself should root us back to the Old Testament. But there's also similarity in, in the things, in the plagues that happened in Exodus and here in Revelation 8 and 9. And as... These judgments unfold, the same thing happens that happened in Egypt. People's hearts are getting harder. If if people survive the monstrosity of judgment, still they do not repent. We see this in, in verse 20 of chapter nine. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. They're lifeless gods. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Regardless of how bad things got, the earth dwellers were cemented in their ways. The idolatries that they turned to, the things that they loved more than God himself, the the things and the places that they turned to to find meaning and hope and identity and comfort now are the things that destroys them. That's the thing about idol worship. You give yourself to something. You you live your whole life pouring out before something, and in the end, that thing turns on you. People would rather perish holding on to their their idols than repent and give them up. Okay, so I've explained what's happening here in this text. Right? We, we, we sort of unpacked what's going on with the seven trumpets, and it seems really dark. What do we do with this now? How, how do we respond to this text? Because here in Revelation 8 and 9, there are not any directives There's no explicit application of what Christians ought to do. 
But this does not mean a response is not warranted. So what do we do? What do we do when we become aware? Because really what this is doing is opening our eyes to see the severity, the seriousness of God's judgment. What do we do when we become aware of this? Well, I think Jesus shows us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took his disciples to to go out and pray in a garden. And Jesus went into the garden knowing that he was about to encounter the wrath and the judgment of God. He knew that the cross was coming. He knew the torment that is depicted in Revelation 8 and 9 was about to be his as he hung on the cross. And Jesus feels the agony of this reality. He he turns to his disciples in Matthew 26 and he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. At the thought of God's judgment, Jesus himself is anguishing. He's he's distraught over the reality. Even to the extent where he goes to God in prayer and he says three times, is there any other way to do this? Can you take this cup from me? And so Jesus shows us that it is appropriate for us to read Revelation 8 and 9 and feel overwhelmed, to feel a great sorrow, to feel the reality that it's too much for us to bear. If we understand Revelation 8 and 9 correctly, there's no way we can can read it and be unaffected by it. it. It demands an emotive response. Now, this is where I started out at the beginning saying that without Jesus, we are hopeless. But because of Jesus, we have an incredibly bright future. Here's why. Because Jesus went through with God's plan. God said, this is the only way. This is the only way that we can deliver our people from evil. This is the only way that we can deal with evil without crushing the people who committed the evil acts. This is the only way that we can that every ounce of judgment can be poured out. And so Jesus did it. He he went to the cross. 
And so when we see that, when we see what, what could have been, what our reality could have been because of our sin, because of our, because of our desire to walk away and wander from God, it causes a different response. It's not just a, a response of sorrow, it's a response of, of worship. Revelation 8 and 9 should have been you and me. But because Jesus went to the cross, he paid for our sins so we wouldn't have to pay for it ourselves. That each and every one of our sins was placed on him. He was crushed so we would not be crushed. Instead of experiencing the torment of, of judgment, now by faith in Jesus, we inherit a glorious eternity with him. Now listen, most Sundays I pray that there would be unbelievers in the room, that God would do something and, and stir their hearts for them. And then today I found myself praying, I hope all the unbelievers stay at home and watch TV because this is really hard to hear. But listen, if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus yet, I'm begging you, as somebody who is on the same path that you are headed down, turn to Jesus while you can. Take this opportunity to repent of your sin, to stop living a life of idolatry and giving your life away to meaningless and, and, and lifeless gods and to trust in him. Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, if you hear his good news, do not harden your heart in rebellion and reject him. Don't be like Pharaoh. Take this as an opportunity for you to turn to God and to lay hold of his mercies that are for you in Christ. Because there will be a day Guys, there will be a day when repentance is no longer an option. For the believers in the room, there's nothing else that should motivate us for, for, for mission more than this. Knowing that there are people who are going to perish. There are people who we know that this might be their reality. And so in, in every ounce of faith and in good works, we step out to proclaim what Christ has done for these people. Because the reality is, is that without Jesus, our future is incredibly bleak. But with him, things are incredibly bright. Now, when Jesus is in the garden, he has a response to the severity of judgment. He has a response to the sin that he's seen that's gonna come piling down on him. But he, he turns and he talks to his disciples and he tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now this is, this is something that Jesus says that, that in its immediate context has direct application and specifically to Peter, James, and John, the, the three dudes that Jesus is with as he's praying and he's telling them, hey guys, stay awake, be watchful. Don't, don't fall asleep on me and stay awake and pray. 
But even in this saying, there is a broader application for Christians. There's a sense where we need to watch and pray. What are we watching? We need to watch our own hearts. Even when we say, when we profess our faith in Jesus, when we trust him as our Lord and Savior, our hearts are still fickle. They're they're prone to wander. And so Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in evil with an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's saying, take care, be watchful, keep an eye out for your evil and unbelieving heart, at least the tendencies that your heart has. Then he says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, sin is a slippy slope. If you keep giving yourself to sin, you keep giving yourself to idol worship, you keep giving yourself to the things of this world, it's going to harden your heart over time. You keep hardening your, hardening your heart, hardening your heart, and it'll come to the point, this is where C.S. Lewis says, your heart becomes unbreakable that there's no conviction of sin. You're just stuck in it. An unbreakable heart will eventually be crushed. And so we need to be watchful that our hearts don't get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this isn't just like a me and God thing tucked away in our little prayer closet. This is a communal thing This is a command for brothers and sisters to exhort one another every day to allow people to speak in your life and say, brother, sister, is your hope in Jesus right now or is your hope in the things of your own hands? So we keep watch, and finally we, we pray. We, we keep praying the Lord's Prayer. We keep realizing there's a certain degree where our flesh fails, but the Spirit of God is willing and strong. By God's grace and power, the Spirit is at work helping us to resist sin to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus and delivering us from evil, helping us to pray and mean it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us from evil. We keep praying that God would do a work and that it would start in our heart, that our our own hearts would be transformed, that the kingdom of God would be breaking in first internally. We'd be praying for our not yet believing friends and neighbors and families that they would come to know Christ as their Savior, that the kingdom of God would be breaking in in their own hearts, that, that we would both be convicted of our sin, that we'd come face to face with the reality of the bad news, 
that today we can look at how bad it is, but in seeing the good news of Jesus and what he has done in the gospel for us, we can rejoice in the good news for eternity. That's what we do with this text. Father, we pray that you would do a work in us now. This is, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's from you. It's your word. We're trusting in it. It takes faith to approach these words and think, how can this happen? But Father, your, your plan is good and perfect. Father, we ask that you would help us to be agents of reconciliation, that we would look out at our city and see see people who are at, at odds with you and be, be people who proclaim truth, that you would be reconciling the world to yourself through us. Father, we ask that you would deliver on the promises, that, that things would be on, on earth as it is in heaven. We trust you, Father, We're asking for all this in Jesus' name, amen.